We're going to look at the, the first 18 verses of John 5 this morning. I think your, your bulletin probably says 17 there. We're going to go ahead and look at 18 this morning as well. You know, the prophet Isaiah, when he was prophesying about what we call the messianic age, the age when the Messiah would actually show up and, and do ministry here on earth, here's what he says about it. In Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, he says, Then, talking about that day, the day of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man leap like a deer. Then, uh, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. What we see in our day, in, in our passage today, and throughout the Gospels, and throughout the Gospel of John in particular, is the coming of this age and how it manifests itself, how it works itself out, uh, particularly in the signs and wonders that Jesus does that point us towards his glory and ultimately point us towards the fact that he can heal not just our bodies but our souls. And so today as we come to this passage, we come to uh, a passage about a healing that takes place um, here at, the, at a pool called Bethesda uh, near the Sheep Gate. And we'll talk about all that. But it also leads to a controversy about what's appropriate to do or not do on the Sabbath. And so we'll talk about all these things today. Uh, so let's give great attention to the reading of the very word of God. We're going to read John chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Would you use it this morning to, to drive deep down the, your truths, the truths of the gospel into the depths of our lives? They would cut us to the core of our being, exposing our sin, our nature, and yet also revealing that we all have hope. That our hope is in Jesus Christ, the one who has come and laid down his life that we might live, that we might be made whole. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thirty-eight years. That's longer than Jesus has been alive when this, on, on earth when this event occurs. 
For 38 years, this man's been crippled. He's likely been coming to this portico by this pool every day for over three decades. You feel the weight of that? The hopelessness? The tragedy? The brokenness? This pool was located in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate at the wall of the city. It was a strategic place uh, for pilgrims, um, for, for, for the needy to gather to collect alms from pilgrims that were coming into the city. The thought is that as pilgrims would come into the city, particularly for a feast, uh, that they would be joyful. They would be excited about finally reaching this, this center of their, li- of their spiritual lives. And they might be in the giving mood. And so the, the beggars would gather there by the gate in the shade of this portico and, and beg for money, beg for help. And so Jesus approaches this man and he asks him, he says, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question. Do you want to be healed? The man doesn't have an answer. He has a story. A story of excuses about why he hasn't been healed. This pool called Bethesda was believed to be a miraculous pool. It was fed by an underground spring and at times air and water would rush from under the pool creating this whirlpool sort of effect there. Ancient legend, which in some versions of your Bible you might even have there as verse 4. You notice the ESV skips from the end of verse 3 to verse 5. Verse 4 there we believe was added later on. It's actually a legend not intended to be in the text as we have surmised. Uh, But what was taught was that that when the waters were stirred up what was actually happening was angels were coming down and touching the water and infusing the pool with mercy. And that the first people to reach the water when it was stirred up by the angels would be miraculously healed. And so the lame and the handicapped would gather here by this pool, not only to ask for alms from the people coming into the city, but to try to be in the water when the waters were stirred up, that they might be healed. And this man's story was that he, was, he had no help. He was too slow in his own to beat others to the waters when the healing powers arrived. But you know, it's likely that this man was somewhat scared to be healed. He had been crippled for so long that the prospect of being normal probably scared him to the depths of his being. All that he knew was begging. I have an old friend here in Columbus who used to come by about every month or so, sometimes more often, sometimes less often, and was constantly asking for help. He, has a, he had a, a, wife, well, a wife-ish sort of person, some, a girlfriend, of, a common-law wife, I suppose we would say, who had been invalid for many years. Hard to get, couldn't get out of bed, had many, many health effects, things going on. And he was constantly asking for help with her for food or for, you know, just, you know, things that she would need, other things that they might need. And so we, over time, sometimes we were able to help him, sometimes we weren't, but he was off to come around to the point that he became a friend of mine. uh, To the point that when she went to the hospital here in Columbus one time, I got the the opportunity to go meet her and spend some time with her and pray for her and and get to know her a little bit because I'd only met him. Uh, and while I was there, she said, so, Johnny keeps coming to ask you for stuff, doesn't he? And I said, well, yeah. I said, I, I understand that you're, you, know, you have a great need, that you're, you have a hard time getting the stuff that you need. And she says, I get a check every month. We don't need nothing. I said, hmm, that's interesting. Johnny's been asking me for stuff for a long time. <laughs> um, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, Johnny has nothing but I get a check every month and 
we don't really need much help. She said, but Johnny loves asking. It's a game for him. He loves being able to go out and get people to give him stuff. And he's become dependent upon it for the things that, just for his own mental well-being even. And she's explaining this stuff to me, and I got the opportunity to recount that situation, that conversation with Johnny later on, and Johnny hasn't asked for much lately. Um, but Johnny was caught in a spiral of, I, my worth is tied up in what people give me. So he was dependent upon needing others, even though his need may not have been as great as he presented. remember the, the movie Shawshank Redemption remember Morgan Freeman's character Red and look I'm going to spoil a little bit of this for you if you haven't watched Shawshank Redemption it's 20 years old that, that's on you <laughs> <laughs> it's on TBS every 10 minutes so I mean you know at the end of the movie Red, Morgan Freeman's character is finally released from prison and after, after many years he, he goes to this halfway house sort of thing, this little hotel of sorts. He's got this little room with just a bed and a little kitchen, and, he, and they give him a job bagging groceries down at the grocery store, and he is completely out of his sorts. He doesn't know how to handle this. He doesn't know how to be in the real world after having been in prison for decades. And he spirals downward in his loneliness and in his boredom and in his longing for his friends and his home back at the prison. How weird is that? But it's reality. It's all he has known to the point that it becomes suicidal. And we watch with grief because by this point in the movie we've come to love Red and his character and we kind of spiral down with him and we feel the grief that he's facing. Uh, he's afraid and lonely. He said having been cast out of a place that had become his home with friends and friends who had become his family. But Red ultimately found peace only in his relationship with a guy named Andy Dufresne, who the, the movie centers around their relationship from the very beginning. But at the end, he's able to go and find Andy, and he finds hope only in the community of this friendship. The man in this story that we're reading today in John 5, even with the gift here of new and sturdy legs, he seems to like to walk alone. Jesus heals them, tells him, take up your bed and walk, you're healed. He immediately takes up his bed and walks to the point that he doesn't even know who has healed him. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he seems to like walking alone. He's gotten used to taking from others, kind of being independent, even in his handicap. Remember, he said, I have no one to help me, no one to get me, help me get to the pool. No one. He's not living in true community with anyone. And maybe as Jesus talks to him later at the temple, runs into him, and, and we'll, we'll talk about their conversation later, but when Jesus tells him, you know, I see you're healed, go and sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. What is that sin? I, I, I don't know if it was any one particular sin or just sin in general, but maybe that not living in community and not being willing to depend and, and love and do life with others is the sin that Jesus warns him about when he sees him at the temple. We're designed for community. In Acts 2, we see that the church is designed to be a community of sacrifice and helping those in need. It's centered on relationships. And that's what's at the heart of this confrontation that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders here in this passage. The Jewish leaders seem to love rules, or at least their interpretation of the rules, specifically, 
more than they love relationships. They can't see the miracle for the infraction that they think has occurred, has occurred when this man's taking up his mat on the Sabbath and walking. The Jews are much more concerned about this man breaking their Sabbath rules than they are about rejoicing that a man who has been lame for 38 years is now walking. They missed the miracle. And it's tragic. The rules that, that they're trying to enforce aren't even the law of God. They are their own erroneous interpretations of God's law. The law of God teaches that people should rest from their work on the Sabbath to worship and, and take a break from your daily life, get some rest, and, and set a day aside to worship God. Well, some of the Jewish leaders decided that carrying your bed, which was like a camping mat rolled up, amounted or constituted work. And in their eyes, there could be no exceptions to their interpretation of the law, which is no work on the Sabbath. And if that's work, you shouldn't do it. And they've decided that picking up your bed, rolling it up and carrying it is work. And so when they see this man who's been healed carrying his bed, they're much more concerned that he's not obeying their rules than that he's been through this miraculous transformation. The other Gospels contain other examples of Jesus having conversations with the Jews about these same issues. You can go to Luke 5 and 6 or even Matthew 2 and 3 or Matthew, I mean Mark 2 and 3 or Matthew 12 for, for more on the Sabbath. We're look kind of at Luke 6 this morning. Let's look at some other things and see how Jesus interacted with the, the Pharisees in particular over the, the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus and the disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. And as they're walking through the grain field, they're plucking some of the grain from the stalks. I mean, I have my terminology right. I've never been a grain farmer. Uh, so they're plucking some of the, the kernels from the stalk and, and, and eating them. And so the, some of the Jews see them doing this and confront them for breaking Sabbath rules. Now you might think, well, weren't they stealing? Isn't that a bigger deal? Well, it would be, but the law also commanded the people who owned the fields to leave some of the field for those who were traveling or were poor or whatnot that they could actually take from the field and, and feed themselves. So it wasn't stealing. There was a provision for that. But the Jews confront Jesus and his disciples about breaking the Sabbath because they decided that taking wheat from a stalk and threshing it in your hands and eating it was work. You see the ridiculousness, ridiculous nature of this. And so Jesus reminds them, he responds to them by reminding them of the time that David led some of his men when they were hungry into, into the, the temple where they ate the showbread in the house of God or in the tabernacle. There was some bread set aside in the, the holy place there, and only the priests can eat that bread. But when David was hungry, he and his men that were with him were hungry, they went into that place and ate that bread, which was clearly a violation of the letter of the law. It was only for the priest. But Jesus says that mercy rules over that. And so when you're hungry, the showbread is there. He doesn't say that David was wrong for doing that. He actually says David's an example of how we can live within the spirit of the law, which above all is merciful to us. Jesus has pointed out mercy is more important than 
the rules, the technicality of the rules here. He also teaches them, he says, in the context of that, he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is what gets him in trouble because there is only one Lord of the Sabbath and that's God himself. But Jesus is saying, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He seems to enjoy reminding them of exactly who he is. They can make up all the rules about the law that they want. They can add all the things against the rule, you know, because the law said don't work. Well, they start defining work and making that the law. And Jesus says, you can do that all you want to, but I wrote the law. I know what it means and I know what it says. And I don't have to follow your rules because your rules are your rules. God's rule is the law. He's the one that instituted the law itself. Luke 6 also contains the story of the time that Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and there was a man there with a crippled hand. Now it says that the scribes and the Pharisees were gathered around waiting to see what Jesus was going to do. So the, the, the implication there is that they've planted this man, so they're using this crippled man as a pawn of sorts, in the sanctuary, in the synagogue there, to be a, a trap for Jesus. They're wondering, is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? We're ready, we're going to confront him. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus, though, knew their thoughts and he confronted their faulty thinking. He asked them, instead of healing the man, he asked them a question. He says, do you think it's more lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Whether it's good to save a life or destroy it, well, it's a catch, right? Because the Jewish leaders can't say, oh, no, evil's better than good. Destroying life's better than saving life. And so they're caught, what's the best thing to do in this situation? And so Jesus has kind of trapped them on the day they were trying to trap him. And so the Gospel of Matthew adds more dialogue, including the fact that Jesus asked them rhetorically. He said, look, how many of you, if your sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would not get your sheep out of the pit? Because he knows they would all get their sheep out of the pit. And it was allowed to get your sheep out of the pit. That was okay. And so he traps them again. He's got them caught in the fact that when it comes down to it, they'll break their own rules about the Sabbath. Jesus says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? And then he healed the man with the withered hand. Relationships take precedence over our interpretation of the rules. Mercy takes precedence over maybe our interpretation of the rules. People over preferences. This is why even to this day, no matter how strict a Christian's view might be on Sabbath practice, because there's lots of views about how to keep the Sabbath even in our own day. But no matter how liberal or conservative you are in keeping the Sabbath, everyone agrees, as the confession, as our Westminster Confession says, that acts of necessity and mercy are always appropriate on the Sabbath. Always appropriate. Necessity, getting your sheep out of the pit. Mercy, taking care of the sick and the invalid, as examples, are always appropriate on the Sabbath. The other thing that Jesus teaches about the Sabbath around these events is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's Mark 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And what he means is that man wasn't created to make sure that the Sabbath laws were all kept perfectly. It, man wasn't created to give credence to God's law, although we are created to obey God's law. He says the law was given, in particular the Sabbath law was given to serve mankind, to provide a day set aside for worship and rest. Two things that are necessary for people to love 
to love rightly with God and others, to live a life of love. We need a break from our regular routines, and so God gives that to us. But we also need a time to center ourselves solely and wholly on the worship of God. And so we get a day within our calendar. God designed the calendar, and, our, and the law includes a provision for us to take a break from our normal work and worship and rest, to stop and breathe, to stop. In the business of our life, maybe we haven't noticed that our neighbor is crippled and needs help. And so it's a day for us to stop and not only worship God, but to look around us and say, who's needy? What can I do to help others? And so it's a day to worship and rest and do acts of mercy to care for one another, to keep the great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Should we do that every day? Yes. And, and my actual view is that every day is a, is a kind of Sabbath in the new kingdom, in the messianic age. <laughs> because Jesus has brought fulfillment to all these things. Jesus is our rest. Every day we're to enter that rest. But even in that, God has, in his wisdom, given us a day that we should take and set aside for worship and rest. It's for us. It's given to us. The Sabbath was given to us to serve us. Before we go, let's return, as the text does here, back to the story of the man who was healed. Like I said earlier, when he was first healed, he simply takes up his mat and he walks away. Jesus said, get up and walk. He gets up and walks. Verse 13 tells us he doesn't even know who's healed him. The Jews come to him and they say, who told you? Or he said, you know, why are you, why are you taking up your bed and walking? He says, well, the guy who healed me said to do that. Well, who told you that? Well, I don't know who it was. Um... He didn't even know who had healed him. How could you not know who has healed you? If you've been crippled for 38 years and you can now walk, you don't know who healed you? Now, it does say there that Jesus walked to the crowd. But I cannot imagine chasing him down and hugging him and falling at his feet and saying, thank you. And saying, thank you. I remember Joni Erickson Tata talking about the glories of heaven. And she said, um... She said she remembers her days growing up in the Anglican church where they would often bow on their knees to pray. And she remembered being a young adult. She was injured. Her spinal cord was injured. She became a quadriplegic at the age of, I think it was 18. And so in the years following that, she would go to worship and she, was weak. she would weep at times when the priest said it's time to bow and pray because she was unable to bow and pray. And she talks about being in heaven and she says... Uh, one of the first things that, that's going to happen in heaven, she said, sure, there's lots of things going on in heaven that I'm excited about. She said, but one of the first things that I'm excited about is approaching my Savior and on new, completely healed, completely whole legs. I'll bow before him to say thank you for healing my soul and healing my body. Thankfulness gratefulness how could you not know who's healed you and what does he do after he sees Jesus again he learns, he learns exactly who it was that heals him he runs and tells the Jews he becomes a tattletale he goes and tells the Jews the man that told me to take up my mat and walk is that guy right there it's Jesus if you've been crippled for 38 years there's only one thing that could keep you from not just 
uh, knowing who it is that healed you, but, but knowing all that you could about that man. What could keep you from that? The only thing that could be in your way that would have to be a hard, ungrateful, broken heart. This man thought his greatest problem was his legs. His legs weren't his greatest problem. His heart was not engaged with the king of creation. He stood face to face with the king of creation. He's experienced the healing touch of the king of all creation. But yet he isn't worshiping the king of creation. His legs may be fixed, but his heart is broken. What is the character of this man? Ungratefulness. Selfishness seem to be the things that mark him. You know, we often think, might think, that it's only well people or rich people that live in selfishness, hoarding all their goods and all their, their plenty. But the reality is, sin doesn't discriminate. Even those without anything often selfishly live as if they are the center of the universe. And to live as if you... To live as if you are the center of the universe is to deny by default that God is at the center of the universe. But the reality is none of us are at the center of the universe. There's only one who is above all. And we're to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so this is a call to examine our own hearts. Do we take our healing for granted? As if God owes us wholeness? That we're deserving, that we're good, that we're better than. When hardship comes into our lives, do we think that's not fair? It's not good. We don't celebrate it. But we deserve much worse. For we are sinners, and the wages of sin is death. How sad it is to be physically healed by Jesus but to reject the eternal healing of your soul that he also offers. Yet the warning from Jesus is clear. He tells the man to stop sinning or something worse than being crippled will happen to you. What's he talking about? Sin leads to hell, to death, to the grave, to eternal punishment. You think 38 years sitting in a portico begging for food is, is awful? Eternal condemnation awaits those who don't recognize that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. The same is true for us, for everyone who's ever lived. We've got to stop our sin-loving ways and live lives of repentance and faith. We've got to hate our sin and love righteousness. Does that save us? No, but it's the evidence of the fact that we've met Jesus and he's transformed us. That we grow in our hatred of sin. We grow in our love for righteousness. Because look, the one who is the king of all creation offers us redemption and he calls us to live righteously. And so we're to go and sin no more as Jesus often tells those he heals. We've got to be careful of only loving Jesus because of temporal blessings that we might receive from him. You know, for some of us it might be that we come to church because of the community, because of the friendships, because of the care that we receive in, in a being amongst the people. And those are all good things. We're, we're supposed to be those things for one another. But if we're only coming for that community, 
and we're not connected to the Savior and the Lord and the head of that community, Jesus, then those things are just going to be temporal blessings. Our greater need is to love and obey and cherish Jesus. And when done rightly, it will lead us deeper and deeper into that community we're talking about. Verse 18 tells us that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, not for breaking the Sabbath, but because he was making himself equal to God. So what we see here is that Jesus, by this miracle and then through his interaction with the Jews, is declaring to the world that the one about whom Isaiah prophesied, remember the one who would make the, the, the deaf hear and the mute speak and the lame leap for joy? Jesus is declaring to all the world I am he. I am the Messiah you're waiting for. And I'm right here with you. Jesus is declaring that this messianic age has arrived. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And Jesus knows that making this declaration and doing these works in this way is putting him on a path towards his death. He knows they're going to kill him. But he doesn't shrink from the persecution coming his way. He actually forces the issue. He forces people to consider that he may actually be the one he is claiming to be. The signs and wonders are meant to point us that direction. That we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is, is either a blasphemer, as the Jews claim. Unrightly claiming to be God. Or he is exactly who he claims to be. The Son of God. His death, his life, his death, his resurrection prove that he is what he claims to be. He is the Son of God. He heals the sick, but he also forgives sins. He's the Savior that we need. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are good. So many of us long to be filled, to be healed physically, emotionally. Maybe we're longing for relationships to be healed or finances to be healed or just so many situations that we're in that cry out that this world is broken and we are a part of that brokenness. And so God, we ask that you would love us in all those situations. We know you have the power to heal. We see it here. And I ask that you would heal us. But God, more than that, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to know that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords? That beyond your ability to, to heal and touch our bodies, which you may or may not do, because you're all wise, God, would you give us a hunger to be renewed and refreshed in our souls? So maybe some of us for the first time to be made lot, to be given life to escape eternal death and to come into eternal life. Would you give us the faith to believe? If there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, would you awaken that heart even right now to trust in you, to find life everlasting? But God, maybe there's others of us who have walked with you for many years. And maybe we've walked away or we've gotten distracted by the things of this world or we've become hard in our own hearts towards your work. God, would you soften us? Would you draw us near to yourself and remind us that we are your people. You are God. You are the shepherd of our souls. And you care for us. We are like the sheep in the pit. That you would always pull us out. We're the, the one out of the 99 that when we walk away you come after us. And so I ask you, Father, would you come after us? 
and draw us back, draw us near to yourself, that we might know you and walk with you and bring glory to you as we seek to enjoy you all the days of our lives. Help us to hate our sin, to love our Savior, to not put our rules about our interpretation of the law above loving and serving and caring for others. Help us to be merciful and kind to those around us. We would serve and love because you have served and loved us. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.